If we were to start the world from scratch, if we had a clean slate knowing everything we know now, how would we do it this time? I'm Oli Giu, and this is Starting From Scratch, the podcast exploring the many different ways civilization could tackle issues differently if we had the chance. In this episode, I'm talking about equality. Is there a way we could reboot without the divides caused by inequality, not just financially, but across the board? Matthew Whitaker is the Deputy Director of the Resolution Foundation, an independent think tank focused on improving the living standards for those on low to middle incomes in the UK. Matthew works in improving what we have already, so it was quite a challenge for him to have free reign to imagine what things might be like if we had a completely clean slate. <laughs> the blank canvas is, is really difficult, but I think whenever you think about any sort of political system, you, you, you start not with the politicians or indeed with the system. You, you start with the people. And so what you have to, I think, take it back to is what do people want? Uh, so partly that's a question of do, do people want zero inequality? Do they, are they accepting of some inequality in order that they might be part of the winning group? Uh, or do they just not care at all? Actually, they're, they're quite happy as long as they're getting by, then they don't really care. And, you know, they just don't want to see homeless people on the street, but but that's not really their problem. So you have to start with the people, but you don't necessarily have to accept that all of the people's opinions are right, because you have to then take a view and say, um, this is what we as a society think should be the case. And the majority can can rule there, if you like. And I think what's really useful, actually, is in the last few years, um, there's been a, a bigger dive into looking at uh, well-being data. So we always have all the sort of objective stuff about how rich people are, um, what sort of houses they live in, and so on and so forth. But over the last few years, we've started asking people questions about, you know, how happy are you? How content are you with your life? Uh, what is it that drives your satisfaction? Uh, what is it that drives your dissatisfaction? And when you start to look at that data in the UK and indeed in other countries, you start to see some quite interesting things, I think, which is that income does matter. Uh, and actually, once you control for everything else, so forget about how old someone is, forget about what education they've got, what house they live in, being richer makes them happier. But only up to a point. Uh, and in the UK, it seems to be around about the 50,000 mark. Once you get past that, people's sort of extra bit of happiness they get for every extra pound they have doesn't really increase very much. So incomes matter. So I don't think you'd want to be in a world in which you say to people, yeah, everybody just has has the same amount and there's no prospect of you ever sort of getting better off. I don't think people would buy into that. But then you look at the other things that um, that people say they value and that, that are good for their well-being. And on those measures, you start to think, well, okay, maybe we can do a better job on those. And that's health. Health is actually the biggest indicator of all. So particularly when you think about people with long-term illnesses, disabilities, and so on, uh, those really are the barriers that at the moment most drag people down and, and that, that we should care more about than we, than we do at the moment, I think. But also where people live, owning a home makes people happier than renting a home for, I think, probably very obvious reasons around security, uh, which doesn't mean that the answer is to have everyone owning a home, but it does tell us that we need to care about the, the well-being of people in rented accommodation and think about our housing solutions as well. And also just, you know, your life stage. People who are sort of my age in their early 40s, uh, people with younger kids uh, tend to be in a bit of a trough because, you know, life's a bit of a struggle. You're working full time. 
bringing up children as well. Uh, often it's the point in your life when you've got the biggest bills, if you've got mortgages and so on and so forth, these things are at, at their apex at this point. So life stage matters and that, that starts to take down the road of saying, well, okay, let's think about how we support parents, for instance, and how we support flexible working and shared parental leave and things like that. So you start to get away from sort of saying, well, it's all about how do we have equality of income? And actually it's about how do we create a society that supports people's broader well-being which is about more than just money because then you're in a world in which you can say well okay we can provide um incentives for people to to earn more and to to still have some level of inequality which provides those incentives but actually we are focusing much more of our attention on doing good things in other spheres and that makes for a happy society and it means that you know you don't need to be earning a million pounds to be happy you can be earning much less than that but you're happier because you're having extra layers of support when you're a parent, you've got nicer housing conditions and so on and so forth. Just going back to one of the points you made about being part of the winning group, do you think we inherently want to be part of the winning group? or do? You, because you mentioned, you know, we, we still would like to know that the more we progress in our careers, the more money we'll earn to a point, 50,000 perhaps might be the, the kind of the limit where our happiness peters off. But do you think we always want to be part of that winning group or is it that when we become part of the winning group, we just want to stay there? No, I, th- I think aspiration is a, is a big part of what drives uh, a lot of what goes on in society and what goes on in the political realm as well. So for me, the, the interesting thing was always around the time of the financial crisis. Again, you know, going out, doing research, talking to, to people across the income spectrum. There was a sort of, you know, uh, revolt against bankers because bankers caused this crisis and therefore you know people were angry with them but that it, it dissipated really quickly and within a year or two when you would talk to people about you know what's what are the problems facing britain today and uh, why why are you disillusioned with your life people at the bottom of the income distribution as well as people in the middle and the top would point not to bankers anymore but would point to, to scroungers and would point to immigrants and would point to um those sort of groups that that actually were not necessarily a threat to them at all, but were something that they didn't ever want to see themselves being, and so they were they were, they were the other, and would not point to uh, certainly in the same numbers would not point to the very wealthy, because even if they were not in the position of being wealthy themselves, or indeed had any realistic prospects of getting there, they like the idea that they could get, there, or maybe their children could get there. And so there is this sort of idea of, well, you know, yes, people should pay more tax, but actually, you know, they've worked hard for it. And so I don't begrudge them keeping some of their income. And, you know, that's a big driving force then for politicians who, when it comes to things like tax rates, for instance, uh, are always wary of, of pushing too hard on high rates of, of income tax and uh, capital taxes and so on. Not because there's going to be lots of people that will actually lose out from that. Because when you look at the, the incidence of these taxes, it falls on very few people, but because people aspire to actually being in that position one day. I mean, in, inheritance tax is a really good example. People like the idea that they can leave things behind for their children, and people absolutely buy into the idea that their children should have a better standard of life than they have had. And indeed, that was true through the 20th century. It's sort of not been true over the last 20 years, but it was true through the 20th century. And people just think that is that is progress. That's what progress looks like. And so people like the idea that they can pass on their worldly goods to their children. Uh, that's a natural uh, thing, I think. And so people hate inheritance tax. They absolutely hate it. 
yet there's only 4% of estates that ever pay it. It's set at such a high level, the threshold is so high, that almost nobody you or I know will ever have to pay it. And yet we hate it. And at any time any politician says they're thinking about changing the rate, increasing the rate, people are like, oh, no, I don't like it. Because we all sort of aspire to the idea that we can pass on lots of money to our children. And therefore we don't like the idea that the state is coming along and taking away what we've created for, for our family, what we're leaving for our family. And I think that points to, in a world of whether you're starting from scratch or not, in saying that you know you need to first and foremost engage with the people and what the people want, effectively what we need to do is change national psyches and change the way society views itself so that we, we sort of see ourselves, it sounds terribly utopian, but see ourselves more as a, as a collective family so that you have the idea that we are, we are saving things for our children. Well, what about a social inheritance? What about what we're leaving for our children uh, in a bigger sense? So not necessarily our bloodline, but, but the next generation that comes after us. Can we start to think in that sort of way instead and say to ourselves, what do we want our society to be? So at the moment, there's just the, the default assumption is society is about a race to the top uh, and there are certain rules and regulations in place, which means that people can't gain the system too much. And there is a safety net in place, which means that nobody should be left too far behind. But other than that, it's a bit of a free for all. Or maybe you change the conversation and you say, what do we want our society to be? We want it to be a society in which you can get ahead and you can leave something for your children, but also just a society that feels good, that, that supports people at the right stages and creates a sense that um, we're kind of all in this together and, it, and there's, there's more that matters here than just how much you're earning. That's not your uh, measure of success anymore. It's not how much you're earning, it's not what car you're driving, it's not how big your house is. It's, have I got enough to be satisfied? Could there be a, a cut-off point um, financially in order to limit that disparity on either end of the scale? So even if we are looking at a society which goes beyond just happiness via financial means, if you were to have a, you know, a minimum and a maximum maybe that maximum is 50 or 60,000, that disparity wouldn't be so great. I don't know whether that would be difficult for those who are looking to aspire to earn more and do better in, in life, but you know, how, how could that system potentially work? Yeah, and I think, um, again, this may be me uh, being sort of wedded to always thinking in pragmatic terms and, and the status quo and not being radical enough, but I think, I think you, can, you can kind of envisage this in the current system but you just do it via really quite high tax rates. And you say, um, because if you do want happiness that is about more than income, you still have to pay for it. You know, if you, if you want support for parents, if you want everybody to have a decent home, then that's not free. So you have to raise money. And the way you raise money is always, you know, through taxation. So I don't think it's about necessarily capping how much someone actually earns, but it is about saying beyond certain points, uh, the tax rate starts to ramp up really quite, heavily and then what you're saying is you know, the, the argument that always comes back at that point is well that cuts off people's incentives it means that uh, people don't need to aspire anymore or, and, and you know talented people will leave the country and i think you know there's, there's some truth in that that um people will leave the country you know the very mobile world now but effectively what you're then saying is the country we want 
is filled with people that buy into the same idea. And so if some people think they can go to a different country, earn more, get taxed less, that's sort of okay because um, maybe we don't necessarily want those people in our society, which in a society which we want to be fairer, to be more even. And then the tax that you are bringing in, you're then using that to do all the supporting, but also to support those with, with, with lower incomes in particular. And you can actively then say, also, the society we want actively does not want certain jobs to be done. They're just too uh, menial, too low paid, uh, and therefore we're going to destroy those jobs by making the, the minimum wage so high that no business that wants to run a model based on pack them in, sell them cheap, can survive because they've got to pay their staff too much. So we just get rid of those jobs. You know, that can be a choice that society makes. And so, again, business people who want to follow that model of cheap labour, cheap products, sell, and sort of high-volume market are going to say, well, I don't want to be in Britain because that's not, I, can't, I can't run that model there. Or they say, actually, you know, I've got ties here. I do want to stay in Britain, so I just need to change my model. I need to sort of fall into line with this uh, this form of society, which is all about not having bad jobs and ensuring that those at the very top are paying much more into society in order to support all the good things that we want. And then you're saying to people, this tax thing, you know, the language we use around tax, it's always, you know, who does the burden of tax fall on? Actually, you know, let's get away from that sort of language and think instead about, you know, who is uh, having the privilege almost of, of uh, being in a position where they're working in a job that if it's, if it's well paid, then chances are it's a job they really enjoy because well paid people tend to enjoy their work. And then they are the people that are, you know, supporting everything they see around them through their taxation. And as a society, the conversation we're having all the time with ourselves is, that, you know, we're proud as a nation that we're living in a country where everybody is supported, everybody has uh, the access to, to the right sort of health care, to the decent housing, to good education for their children, all those nice things. And you know, everybody's just happier. And you're, Mr. Rich Person, you're the person that is, you know, contributing uh, a lot to that cause. So well done you. And I suppose in that model, quantity becomes less of the focus and time becomes more of a valuable asset. The time of the people within the country, you know, you're taking away those menial jobs and you're taking away the, the quantity over quality, uh, you, like you mentioned, and suddenly you're saying actually your time is worth it no matter what you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. And and you you also provide protections and support through periods of transition in people's lives. So one of the things we know from the wellbeing data is that people prefer to be in work than to not be in work. I mean, people are at their happiest when they're retired because it's like, um, you know, I've done my, my shift and now it's time, it's gravy time, as it were. But at working ages, people are happier in work than, than out of work. So I, I think the, the, the sort of trope you sometimes get of people saying, oh, you know, if you um, had out-of-work benefits that were too high, you'd have all these people sort of just sitting on the dole and just sitting in their basements playing video games and not really sort of like having any incentive to get out the door and do any work. Well, actually, you know, people are happier when they're working. So there's a natural um, inclination that we have to keep ourselves active and to keep ourselves busy. So if you are accepting of that and you have higher levels of um, minimum wages, but you also have higher levels of support for those who are out of work, then you should also, I think, become more accepting of people spending longer out of work. So rather than as and when 
they get made unemployed or their job uh, comes to an end, saying to someone, right, you've got to get back into work as quickly as possible. You say to them, okay, what's next? What's the best move for you next? Maybe it's doing exactly the same job but with a different company, in which case we can make that happen quite quickly. But maybe it's retraining. Maybe it's doing something completely different. You know, rather than you churning in and out of jobs that, that aren't really working for you for the next five, ten years of your life, let's think about gaining a skill as a, as a plumber or as an electrician or something like that, in which case will allow you to be unemployed or you know, retraining or however you want to, to phrase it for a longer period of time than we, than we do in the current system. And we'll support you through that. We'll support you through that transition. But this social contract that we all have is that, you know, we're all pulling in the same direction. This is a nice society we have. So we do expect, you know, at some point that you are, you're not going to gain the system. You are going to come back into work and you are going to uh, do the right thing. We're not going to chastise you or, or create a stigma around the fact that you're unemployed in the way that we do at the moment. And do you think if, if we did create this cap via tax, that although, you know, as you mentioned, some people might leave the country and say, well, if I can't make loads of money, I don't want to be here. So we lose those people, but we keep the rest. How quickly do you think the happier society around them would be enough to convince them that this model is working and actually it doesn't matter that they're not earning you know ridiculous amounts they're not they're not they're no longer in the top one percent but what they're doing is contributing to a society which in in which everyone's just happier that is a good question and one that i i I don't know the answer to um and and i think always with this and this is why the whole setup here of of starting from scratch versus actually enforcing a change on a society that that is very different uh, that's quite a different thing where I think it's always really difficult politically to push people in a direction, have a, a grand vision, a sort of revolutionary vision, and then say, here's where we're going, come on, come with me, because there will be you know, very uh, vocal opponents and people who really dislike it. And how do you how do you force society to do that thing You know, without becoming a bit sort of totalitarian and, and actually sort of, you know, going down a, a very unhelpful route. So I think thinking about how quickly will someone in a world in which you are flipping from today's society to this other society come to recognise that it's a good thing, there's, there's so many other questions wrapped up in that about uh, the, sort of the whole political upheaval you'd have around it. But I think in a world in which you have started from scratch and it's a, it's a reset, uh, then in that version, then I think the neat thing is that you would get, as ever in economics, you'd get equilibriums where not only would people in Britain who want to be part of this British society would stay and would recognise that this actually is a better place now, but actually people from other countries who want to be part of this sort of society would also come here. And again, the society I'm creating in which uh, there's much less inequality again it's not just about income inequality it's about all of the forms of inequality as well and so the idea that we would view uh, those not born in the uk differently or suspiciously that goes out the window in this society as well so we would welcome those coming from other countries who want to come here and work uh, and earn lots of money in order to pay taxes in order to live in this happy society and i think i think there would be um, people drawn to that sort of vision this uh, this is for another episode i guess but if we started from scratch, I suppose we wouldn't necessarily have to have uh, countries and borders and all that sort of stuff. So if we were um, going to take it as a proper reset 
and society came together and said, look, we're actually starting again and we're going to all band together as one group of people rather than all of these separate groups of people and countries and things like that. And then you could all live under a system like this. How would it look? And, and do you think this is the final answer that we create this society that you're talking about? So, I mean, start start with the is this final answer? I think I think it isn't. It, to, to be perfectly frank, I think um, I think there is a danger that people can, when when given a blank canvas, people can come up with with utopias and with things that, that sort of look and feel great from their personal perspective, and they can rally others around that. And there can be other people that say, yeah, absolutely, this is the answer, and that would be so much better than than what we have today. But as you know, as we've seen with the whole Brexit thing over recent months, um, opinions are wildly split on lots of things, and trying to push a public in a radical direction is always very, very difficult and very divisive, and falls very quickly into people getting quite angry with each other. And so, although I would absolutely like to be in a society where you know, there aren't boundaries, there aren't borders, there aren't differences between people. You can't impose that upon people. It has to come from the people. And it's very, very difficult to see how that can happen right now. But you know, speaking as an economist by training, uh, again, we always think in terms of equilibria and in a world in which there are no um, borders, no boundaries, or no restrictions, at least on people crossing um, boundaries, then what happens is people flock to the best place. And then that place gets a bit crowded. And so people say, oh, I think I might go somewhere else. And so then they move to somewhere that's less crowded, and that place becomes better. And then other people shift into that place, it gets a bit crowded, so then other people leave again. So you have this sort of constant flow of people around the globe until you reach a balance where every sort of nation, every country every location has just about the right number of people in order for it to work just about right, for everyone to feel comfortable, for everyone to have enough space, but for society to feel harmonious and to work. And then you have this sort of global vision. I think actually where that becomes more difficult is if you're, if you're going down the route of saying uh, one of the appeals that you make here with creating this sort of this nicer society is a sort of sense of national pride in that we are the country that is leading the way on forming this new society and doing this great new thing that's harder to do when everybody is in that society because then it sort of falls down to pride in, in the sort of human race which is just harder to, to to appeal to i think but nevertheless you know who knows millennia in the future maybe that that is the sort of route we go down and and you know we've not talked about it but the whole robots taking our jobs actually that could be part of the way into some of these solutions that actually why not? Why not have the robots take more and more of our jobs, do all those sort of bad jobs that we don't really want, all the boring jobs, all those routine jobs, and free us up to have more time to do nice jobs, but also more leisure things. And the robots can sort of generate all the all the wealth. Uh, and in that world, you just then need to make sure that it's not just the owners of the robots that are that are then raking in all the money, but actually that that money is used to support society as a whole. So that that may be the route into having a society in the future in which we just care more about ensuring, as you've already said, everybody is using their time in a way that works for them and that everybody's supported and that everybody is just happier. 
Yeah, because I've spoken about this before, actually, the robots potentially taking over the menial jobs and then potentially uh, being able to repair themselves. And then suddenly, yeah, people can chase their passions more. And I suppose that is another important part of um, tackling inequality is that uh, those on the lower end of the spectrum also aren't tackling, aren't able to work within their passions. So I suppose if everybody was doing the thing they love for most of the day, everyone's happier, equality kind of starts to settle in. Yeah, it's, it's funny. You see, again, with the wellbeing data, you, you can actually track people's happiness over the course of a day and you can look at different groups and you see that um, the retired group, for instance, is basically just happy all day. The unemployed group, funny enough, is, is happier than the working group on average in the morning and early afternoon. And then as it comes to sort of like the point at which people start leaving the office or leaving the, the, the job, um, they cross over. So actually the unemployed group, their happiness drops in the evening, whereas the working group, their happiness really spikes in the evening once they're back home with their families and so on and so forth. So there is something interesting about for the retired group, they're basically, you would imagine, doing the thing they want to do all day and they're happy. Uh, for the working group, they are earning their corn during the day and some of them will be happy, some of them will not be, but they are happier when they're at home doing the thing they enjoy, you imagine. And for the unemployed group, there is a sort of like, there's there's a level of happiness, but then it really drops off in the evening, which again just talks this idea that people sort of put value and actually take uh, happiness from being active and from having work. And it's interesting, I want to go back to your point about national pride and, and the importance of that, because, you know, it can be construed as a bad thing in some respects, but do you think national pride is actually an important thing for for us a, a kind of catalyst for us to um do better within our own societies rather than taking that approach that you mentioned of having to fight for your own individual pride yeah i think if 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 nations didn't exist if we really were starting from scratch then i wouldn't want to create them um you'd obviously you know you have to have some sort of administration boundaries because the world is just too big a thing to to get your arms around um so I wouldn't want to create nations if we were starting from scratch, but in a world in which they do exist, then I think they are a very useful means of uh, appealing to people's better nature. You, know, you, you sort of see the way in the UK that the sort of the outpouring of joy around the 2012 Olympics, uh, this sense that we were putting on a show for the world, which was really well done. Our athletes did really well. It never really strayed at all into sort of anything that was jingoistic or, or sort of overly uh, patriotic it, it was just a real sense of happiness that we were able to show to the world what a great place uh, London is and Britain is more generally and how thrilled we were to have so many people from around the world coming to to our home and sort of uh, sharing that with them so I think when you when you work on national pride in that way and tap into that then it can be a very powerful force for good I think clearly national pride can also be a force for bad and that's why i wouldn't want to create nations from scratch but uh, given where we are then i think it would be a, a very useful way of saying what do we want to be known for as a country and the history of britain obviously with the industrial revolution is that we were known for being um you know, the workhorse of the world we sort of uh we were hard working and that's that's in our national national psyche now you know it's like you've got to be hard working you hear politicians talk about hard-working Britons doing the right thing, the deserving poor rather than the undeserving poor and so on and so forth. And actually, maybe that's not the right concept. Maybe 
we should take national pride in being the country that is leading the way on creating a society that is more even, that is fairer, in which we don't just give people equal chances, but we give them more equal outcomes. And that means actually being, you know, sort of taking positive um, action in some areas. It's not enough to say we have legislation which says that you can't discriminate between uh, someone who's black and someone who's white when they come for a job because people have unconscious bias. So we have to go further. We have to sort of change the way society thinks about these things from first principles. And wouldn't it be great if we were the country that was leading on the, the way on that? And so when people sort of talk about Britain around the world, they're not talking about uh, bad weather, bad teeth, and um, people who, who sort of like work hard and have high inequality. Instead, they're talking about this sort of great society in which everyone's pulling together in the same direction. Before I ask you about your vision of a utopia, your summary of a utopia that you'd like to see, just for the UK alone and in your role in the Resolution Foundation, what what do you want to see if you could, even if you're being unrealistic or realistic, whatever you like to do, um, looking at the next 20 years, how would you like to see those pan out? So, yeah, I'll take the the sort of more realistic end of it um, because I I think... um, there's, there's lots of reasons why uh, you might be pessimistic about the next two decades. Um, but there's also, there is, you know, we are not helpless. We can do something about it. And so I think actually taking a quite a realistic view of what's possible is quite useful because it sort of, it stops you falling into the trap of saying, well, it's all just too difficult. You know, we might as well give up. Either we start from scratch or we just give up because this system is just flawed and broken and there's no way out. So my preference is always sort of, be on the pragmatic side and the realistic side and actually say, you know, no, let's not give up. Let's, let's do what we can do. And I think, you know, the, the huge opportunity that we have as a country is we've got masses and masses of wealth. Uh, we've done this expansion of home ownership through the eighties in particular. Uh, and then the big surge in house prices means that we have people sitting on you know, hundreds of thousands of pounds worth of wealth, which they've sort of got almost by luck. Because, yes, they've invested in property, but then what's really driven uh, the return on that is just that house prices have absolutely rocketed. And now we have a generation obviously coming through that can't access that ownership. Uh, and instead, it's purely then down to look as to whether their parents happen to own already, in which case they can access the bank of mum and dad maybe in order to buy or they can wait for the inheritance in order to then have a house. Although, given the way longevity goes, they'll probably wait until they're in their 60s, so maybe that's not so useful. But it's all down to look. And as a society, we can say, well, hang on, what's happened here is a good number of people have been fortunate, worked hard, deserve what they've got, but also been fortunate in that they've been able to buy property at just the right time before it sort of rocketed in price and then they've done incredibly well out of that rocketing in price and now they're sitting on lots of wealth and we're just not taxing it we're just not accessing it at all and we've got lots and lots of issues coming up in the next two decades many of which actually are are directly relevant to exactly that same group so who are we talking about here we're talking about primarily baby boomers and it's those baby boomers who are now just starting to hit retirement and will live for another 30 40 years and are going to put massive pressure on our state in terms of how much we spend on health in particular, pensions as well. And in a world in which we don't increase our tax base, we don't bring in any more revenue from the working age group, which is shrinking relative to the retired group, then we're not going to be able to afford the healthcare that that group thinks it's going to get, the same quality of healthcare that their parents got. 
And so if we are going to fund that level of healthcare and do other good things as well, then we need to bring in a lot more revenue. So one way of doing it is saying, okay, we'll increase income taxes on the working age group, but then you're talking about the same group that can't access this home ownership in the first place, now paying more income tax to support the baby boomers who've done very well at property. Or we can say, well, maybe we can do a bit of that, but also why don't we just tap into this wealth? And instead of leaving it to look as to whether you are going to leave your house to your children, but children whose parents don't have houses don't get anything, let's let's have a social inheritance. So let's tap into that through capital taxes, through wealth taxes, through change in the way we look at inheritance tax. Uh, this tax that everyone hates, we can just get rid of it. We can create something new instead, a sort of lifetime allowance where you can inherit a certain amount over your lifetime and then it's above a certain point you get tax on it, very much like an income tax, which just changes the way that feels and it can be at a lower marginal rate than we currently have an inheritance tax so people will be less scared of it, uh, but will actually generate more, more revenue from it. So there's opportunities there to bring in lots more money if we're prepared to have the conversation which says we can't just carry on as we get, as we are. And this is where it's very difficult for politicians because no one wants to be the politician who stands up and says, I've got some bad news for you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a, a, things look pretty bleak going forward. And B, the only way out of this is by you giving me some more money, please. That's really difficult to do. But in a sense, any politician that isn't saying that is lying because I don't see how our society can, can really cope with the, the demographic headwind that is coming over the next 20 years without increasing taxation. So that is, we can absolutely do that. And you think that the last 40 years or so has all been about bringing down tax rates and, and giving people tax cuts. And that's just become a, like an expected thing that that's what politicians do. But it didn't used to be like that. And it, it almost can't be like that going forward. So we have to have a, a proper grown-up conversation about, about what sort of taxes we're talking about. And then... Then once you're starting to raise the money, then it's right, well, what do we do with it? And absolutely, health is going to be a, ma- a major issue and social care is going to be a major issue because of the demographics of all this. But also, we can start spending more money on all the things we've been talking about, about you know, better supporting parents, more childcare, which allows people to not really sort of stressing every morning when they're doing the, the school run and then having to get back for a certain time. I mean, the women are penalised in the workforce because they're always working part-time when they're mothers. Um, and, and thinking about how we improve the housing situation so that if you're, it's not just about whether you own a house in the first instance, it's about actually you can live in a socially rented house or a private rented house, which is good quality, which ticks all the boxes you want, which is a family home rather than just a stopgap while you sort of try and work out how you can possibly clamber your way onto the housing ladder. So it could be a really positive future. And, and, I, and I say could be because... I think you kind of alluded to it. A lot of people do think that we're sort of stuck and there's not much hope. But, you know, the next 20 years, at least in in your mind, could be an amazing time for change. Yeah, I mean, I I think there is a, you know, with everything that's going on at the moment, post-financial crisis, the sort of political turmoil around Brexit, I think there's almost almost a sort of uh, binary choice here. Either we sort of carry on in this kind of mess of politics and this divided society, which has become, you know, the the sort of economic divide hasn't increased, especially over the last decade, but it just feels like the cultural and the political divide has. And that's, that's you know, a lot of that is down to Brexit, but uh, I think there's, there's more going on as well. It's, it's that some of the chickens are coming home to roost in things that we've not been doing for a long time, you know, like um, not investing in social housing and you have things like Grenfell and, and all, all that sort of stuff going on. 
Um, we can just carry on like that and individual politicians can muddle through and just focus on their own sort of five-year trajectory of this parliament and then and then move on. Or we can have a sort of an almost, you know, an Obama audacity of hope type moment where you say, do you know what? Things are pretty bad right now. And actually, there's a lot of reasons to think that things might even get worse over the next few years. So let's stop and let's do something different. And there'll be some people who really don't like the solution I'm about to suggest to you, but let's think about the alternatives here. You can carry on as you are. You might be all right, Jack. But actually, increasingly, as society starts to fray at the edges, you might start to wonder about just how all right you are, how much you can sort of remain in your bubble when there are more people sleeping on the streets, when there are more issues around social tensions. So why do we, why do we try this different way? And this different way is, is sort of, it's not even that radical. It just, it just involves uh, reversing the direction of travel that we've been going in over the last 40 years, moving away from a ever lower tax world into one in which we say, if we want a nice country, if we want a nice place to live, we're going to have to pay for it. And so we need to have a conversation about who, who pays for it, whose shoulders does, does that fall upon? Uh, and then we need a conversation about and what do we do with the money? And it just feels like for too long we've not had any of those conversations. It has just been parliament to parliament. Each new government that comes in just has its own uh, take on, on what it should be doing. And it's almost become a thing that if you want to get voted into power, you have to be the party that is sort of offering the lowest tax, the best returns for the lowest tax. And that's it's a really hard trick to pull. And we were helped in the 1980s by the fact we, we discovered North Sea oil, we had privatisation that brought in lots of revenue. We had council house sales, which meant that lots of people suddenly became homeowners. So there's lots of, sort of like good things all happening at the same time. Plus, at that point, the baby boomers were all in work, and the retired population was really small. So we could we could cut taxes on that big working population and still support the retired population and still have nice things. And it's just all changed, and so we we can, we cannot continue with the status quo. It's amazing because when I asked that question. And you said you were going to be pragmatic. I also think you probably delved into how your utopia would look as well at the same time. So starting from scratch is all well and good, but actually the way you're looking at it, you know, you don't need to. It just requires really radical change. And I suppose that's how your utopia pans out too then. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. And I think, um, I think you're then much more likely to bring people with you as well because you're not setting out something that is terrifyingly different. You're simply saying, here's something that's better. And here's some steps you can take to, to get it to better. Thank you to Matthew Whitaker and thank you to you for listening. I'm Ollie Giyu and this is Starting From Scratch. I'll be back next week with another episode. But in the meantime, tell me what you think about the discussions. Send an email to startingfromscratch.pod at gmail.com.